0: From God's word, we read, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you, because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one could say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Early on in my uh, junior high band career, uh, my band teacher asked me if I wanted to do an audition tape for something called the Nova Scotia Youth Wind Orchestra. You guys remember tapes? Yeah. Uh, well, evidently, the orchestra was kind of short on trombone players, and so I sent the tape out and I, and I got in. And I was not paying that much attention, I did not really know what this group even was, but I was game, would give it a shot, so I arrived at this weekend boot camp in I believe in Halifax, and uh, I was given this folder of music when I got there, every single piece of which was much, much harder than anything my school band had ever tried before. And then it was off to rehearsals and off to workshops, and, uh, and I, was, I was in way over my head, but I do like a challenge, and so this was a, a neat experience because there was a whole band full of students who were at least as good or much better than I was, and so this group learned pretty fast. By concert time at the end of that weekend, what had seemed impossible was actually sounding pretty good. Each musician was playing their part. They were fitting in just right as they should, and there is something special that you feel when you're part of something that is, it just clicks. Right, when There was this experience of, of harmony, a pleasing arrangement of different parts. And in this case, of course, there's actual musical harmony that I'm talking about. But you can have harmony without chords. When you're part of a, a dedicated group that's working towards some common goal that is deeply important to everybody, you may experience this other form of harmony. And I've had periods on like a church mission trip or part of a summer camp staff where I've seen that as well. But it is hard to maintain harmony over a long period of time. When everyone is fired up about a common goal, it usually goes well at first. But over time, people inevitably frustrate and disappoint each other. And sometimes a community can rally again and return to harmony if it breaks down. But sometimes they descend into discord and don't come back. One of the remarkable things about the early church that we read about in the New Testament is that they were often able to achieve a degree of harmony with the tremendous diversity that they had. Because there was nowhere else in this ancient society where you could find such different people coming together. I mean, in that world, Jews and Greeks did not mingle, right? Men and women did not worship and learn and serve together. Rich and poor certainly didn't sit around the same table for fellowship. But these first Christians changed all of that because they became a new kind of family brought together by their shared faith in Jesus. And that faith had to be a remarkable thing to break down these lifelong barriers that people had, that they've observed since they were kids, and then to bring them into this new kind of community. I hear it said a lot today that we're in a world that's increasingly divided. And it looks like in many ways that is true. I see evidence of it in the wider church world as well. At all these levels were polarized, thanks at least in part to even things like social media or internet communication, the things that were supposed to bring everybody together. Under circumstances like these, there's actually a lot we can learn from the early church, because those first believers can give us inspiration. They can show us what it would look like to have a passion for following Jesus that's more important than whatever might threaten unity. But the early church also didn't get it right all the time. Being a community with unity took struggle and sacrifice, and they messed it up in all kinds of ways that needed correction. And so, as I said, for most of May and June, we're going to spend some time with the early church that was actually probably the messiest of them all, which is the church in Corinth. And we'll touch on quite a bit of the book of 1 Corinthians, which was a letter the Apostle Paul sent to them to teach them, to encourage them, but also to straighten them out about quite a few different things. We'll look at the challenges they faced. We'll look at how God helped and blessed them in order to be a community of faith that has something to teach us. So to start, there are some things about Corinth that would make it a tough place to figure out how to be a church. Corinth had a bad reputation. Right? The oldest Greek literature we know, has, it links Corinth with wealth and with immorality. The philosopher Plato used, the word, used Corinthian girl as shorthand for prostitute. Corinth, at one time, was the home to the Temple of Aphrodite, where there were temple prostitutes that could be found in abundance. There was an ancient proverb that said, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. But then Corinth was burned to the ground. It was totally destroyed for rebelling against Rome. But its location as a trading hub was so important that Julius Caesar decided to rebuild it. And uh, it became this Roman stronghold. It became a prosperous port city again. And it still maintained a reputation for all kinds of vices. And whether it was actually more greedy or more corrupt or more sexually immoral than other major cities of that time, is it's hard to know for sure. But nobody in that world associated Corinth with goodness and light. And the church in Corinth had all of that diversity that I talked about before. It was There was a Jewish minority that was important there. There was a former synagogue leader part of that church. Aquila and Priscilla are names we know from other parts of Scripture, these notable disciples and teachers of the early church, but the majority of the church were Gentiles. They had a Greek cultural background. We know some were well-educated and wealthy, people of privilege, but most were everyday people, those who had been living with very different values until they became followers of Jesus, and they started to live in this radically new way. Well, as best they could. Through the Holy Spirit, it is possible, but that does not make it easy to quickly or completely change what you believe or how you think and how you act. So by necessity, they were making a lot of things up as they went along. After all, none of them had belonged to a church or helped run a church before. But they had some help. They had the Apostle Paul who visited them, who stayed with them at length, who stayed in close contact with some of them, and wrote them, we think, four major letters to help them Uh, figure out how to be a healthy Christian community. And two of those letters uh, survived through the years. They were copied and distributed more widely. They became our New Testament books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Although those may actually be 2nd and 4th Corinthians if we had all the letters, apparently. So we started at the beginning of the letter. It starts with greetings to the people there, but it immediately turns into a description of what the church is See, what is the church in Corinth? He says, first off, it's the people set apart to be in relationship with God, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And second of all, within that relationship, they're called to pursue holiness. They want to live God's way. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. And third, they're united with everyone else who has those characteristics. They're connected to those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul moves to celebrating the good that God has done for the Corinthians. God's given them grace, he says. The unmerited and unearned love of God is what is sustaining them. And it's enriched their community too. They have this newfound knowledge. They speak differently, having changed for the better. They were rich, he said, in spiritual gifts. The power of the Holy Spirit was at work among them. And then Paul expressed this great confidence that this church community would be able to handle whatever it was that came their way until Jesus' return. Not because of the strength of their faith, not because of the the brilliance of their leaders, but because God is faithful. The victory that Jesus won on the cross gives sustaining power to those who walk with him. Now, notice who gets the credit in what we read there. He says, he will keep you faith. firm to the end, so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's not about them, it's about him. Because you don't get harmony with diversity. You don't get lasting unity in community without God holding it all together. So then we read just a little bit further. And we see that this is already being put to the test in Corinth. Just 10 verses in, Paul switches his upbeat greeting to express him concern over what he hears is going on in this church. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions, no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. That's, that's an appeal to harmony. A call for this group of people who were different in social status and worldview and religious upbringing to be united in their devotion to Jesus and obedient to his teaching. They would—they were meant to be like a quilt of you know various colors and patterns that's all blended together into a beautiful whole. But Corinth's quilt was coming apart at the seams because Paul had heard from one household that the people were fighting. They were causing divisions in the church over which leader they liked best. Right? They had. Some people who said, well, we follow Paul, the founder of this church, in a sense. And others said, well, no, we follow Apollos, because Apollos came after Paul, and he was a very commanding preacher and, and speaker. And then there were others who said, well, we're for Peter. Peter has never even been there. They don't know Peter, as far as I know, but some of them, that's, that's their guy. They're going to pick Peter's team. And this thing, this absolutely still happens today, by the way. In North America, at least, we're living in a time where where megachurches and celebrity pastors wield a lot of influence over people who probably shouldn't follow. And and there's arguments over, well, you should listen to this person or not listen to that person for all of these reasons. You should follow what this one says and not that one. You should read this book and not not their book. And it's a mistake, I think, especially given how regularly these high-profile people are found to have embezzled or abused or exploited and have to be painfully removed from power. We've got to stop putting so much stock in people that we will only ever see from a distance. It's okay to appreciate, but not to idolize. And some of the Corinthians even seem to think that their baptisms might be, you know, better or worse depending on who had performed it, right? So, like being baptized by Paul was somehow being superior, was superior to being baptized by some lesser-known pastor or leader, which is why Paul says he's glad that he hasn't baptized very many of the Corinthians, Although, Paul's not totally confident how many exactly he did, you know. And I actually really like that detail in this because, you know, as Paul remembers, one more person he did baptize and then admits he's not sure how many altogether it was. It's just a nice little reminder of how real and human this letter is, even as I believe it's inspired by God for my good. Now, this baptism controversy, that might seem kind of silly, right? But I can imagine people arguing about something like that today, like, yeah, well, I was baptized by Billy Graham in the Jordan River, right? And you were just baptized by Pastor Nobody in a wading pool somewhere. Like, mine must be superior. And Paul sounds a bit irate about all this when he starts to ask them some questions. He says, wait a second, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he's just trying to point them back to Jesus. That's who gave his life to save those who call on his name. That's who brought them into their newfound faith. That's who gave them new spiritual life that their baptism symbolized. It was Jesus. And it's easy to say that Jesus is the point of the church. If I say that, I don't think people are going to jump up and argue with me. But that doesn't mean that Christians don't lose sight of this regularly. Instead of Jesus, we can make the church about other things. We can make it about leaders like the Corinthians did. Who preaches best? Who leads best? Who focuses on the things that I like best? The pastors and church leaders are really just there to help try and point us to Jesus. We should not look to them for more than a person can provide. Not only that, but the well-meaning leaders will mess up, and not all leaders are well-meaning. And instead of Jesus, we can also make the church about us. Where do I find the music that speaks to me and the sermon in my style? And where do I find people who agree with all my priorities in politics? And where will they let me have a lot of influence if I go? Or where will they leave me alone and never ask me to do anything so I can just kind of sit back and, and let it all happen around me? Jesus is missing from that. Jesus instituted church community to help us point us to him, not by fulfilling our every desire, but by offering opportunities to love and serve others Bonded by our shared commitment to Christ. And there should be joy and fulfillment found along the way. Church community is meant to bless us. But our consumer culture can sometimes influence us to treat churches the same way we treat cable companies. I'll commit for a while if I have to, but I'm going to be on the lookout for a better deal when it comes around. It's different from seeking to be obedient to Christ. So what makes community with unity work? Really, it's actually who makes community with unity work. And for one thing, it's people who are set apart for Jesus as this letter starts. I mean, it is okay to come to church without being fully convinced or without having made a faith commitment. You can belong before you believe. That's how many people get to believe. But the church community only works if it's anchored by those who believe in Jesus, by those who are committed to answering his call to be holy people to be like Christ. We gather, I hope, not simply out of habit or not simply to catch up with friends, but because we believe we are a people set apart for Jesus and that Jesus has asked us to give ourselves to this community. The second kind of person it takes to have community with unity is those who are quite simply committed to unity with all other believers. The church in Corinth was made up of this very diverse group of people, and Paul reminded them that, They were together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus makes us family. And within that family, there will be all kinds of differences in status and race and politics and all sorts of non-essential theological things about God. But it is still possible, according to Scripture, to have no divisions among you, to be perfectly united in mind and thought, So how can you be perfectly united while disagreeing about certain things or while seeing certain things differently? Because there's never been and never will be a church where everyone thought exactly the same thing about everything, where all opinions were in common. And my best answer to that, I guess, is to say that it only happens by putting Jesus so far above the rest, by taking his command to love one another as the absolute bottom line, no compromise, no negotiation about that to make it so vastly more important than our interests and our preferences, that while we don't, won't see eye to eye with everyone about everything, it matters so little in comparison to our desire to follow Jesus and to love one another the way he asked us to. Third kind of people who are needed to have unity and community are those who are not drawn into distractions and disputes. I mean, just who baptized you or even exactly how that baptism happened, matter compared to your heart belonging to Jesus? Does your preferred preacher or leader matter compared to your everyday faithfulness? There are always distractions and disputes in the church. It happens everywhere that you have people, unfortunately. Someone just the other day was telling me about a church struggling with, uh, with uh, church music. And I thought that the worship wars, which was, you know, that when churches fought over traditional hymns versus, you know, you know, newer songs, I thought that was kind of a 90s, early 2000s kind of thing, but it's still going on in some places. And I get that there's something so personal and meaningful about music that's enriched our lives. But it kind of just boggled my mind hearing this story and thinking about, you know, after two years of pandemic, with so many churches struggling to get back on their feet, with volunteers in short supply and a little burned out in some cases, there are mature church members going around raising a major stink about song selection on a Sunday morning. Like, what a position of privilege to have to be cranky about that instead of seeking to encourage the people working hard to sustain your church through an especially challenging season. It's not simple or easy to know what you should just let go of and know what you should try to address for the good of your church. That's hard. But it's vitally important to ask what Jesus would think. Would Jesus care about this nearly as much as I do? Is a great question to ask about a lot of things. How can I imagine him responding to this situation? What can I do that will honor him in these circumstances? When it comes to distractions and disputes, we always need to bring that back to Jesus, who had an awful knack at getting at the true heart of the matter. So, Who makes community with unity work? It's people set apart for Jesus. It's people committed to unity with all other believers and people who aren't easily drawn into distractions and disputes. These are the people who will create harmony amidst the diversity of the church. They are the community-building and world-changing disciples who've learned how to put Jesus first. And we're invited to become such people or to recommit to being those people if we've wavered or wandered in some way. And it's deeply rewarding to contribute to community alongside people like that. I think harmony is something that we all crave in some ways. I mean, who doesn't want community where they feel safe, where they feel value, where they feel encouraged, where they're able to contribute toward things that really matter? The church is a gift from God that can offer this to a needy world. But each church needs those disciples willing to make community with unity work in order to enjoy this harmony, in order to offer it to others. It takes struggle and sacrifice to build and sustain it, but it's worth it. I mean, it tends to be that when I launch into the first series, message of a series, it gets a little light on specific application, and instead, it kind of stirs up a lot of things that we'll revisit somewhere along the way. But I just want to end on a note of conviction in this: that the effort to contribute to community with unity, is worth it. And I say that as someone who is not a stranger to late nights and moments of doubt and stress and lots of family schedule juggling in order to try to give what I can to church community. I say this as someone who occasionally wants to change his name and move to a cabin deep in the woods after really messing something up well. But I still say it because it is a privilege to have been made part of the family of God and to serve those within it. It's a joy to get to see people love each other the way Jesus asked us to. It's a blessing to to bring up my children in a community, striving to be what God has called it to be and which cares about them. And as many of you know, when that day comes, when that illness or loss upends your life, when you feel powerless because of what your kids or grandkids are going through, when you don't know what it's going to take to bring this relationship back from the brink, when you are forced to deal and grapple with the reality of your days being numbered or a hundred other things that are just more than you can bear or figure out alone. You, You want this kind of community around you. But most important of all, I believe that this is what Jesus has asked of us. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord i just like to conclude with prayer. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you, you brought the church into being for a, a reason. To represent you in this world. To make disciples and teach them to obey everything you've commanded us. To be a place where people look and, and see a bit of you. First of all, by the way that we love one another. And also by the way that we present the good things that you have taught us that help us thrive and show the world the difference it makes when someone puts you first. So God, I would ask of you that you would help each of us consider how we can be those who help build community with unity. Those who see themselves as as set apart for you, who desire to be your holy people, who recognize that. Despite all kinds of potential differences, we are united with all of those who truly call on your name. And that we would not be people who are easily brought into disputes or distractions, Lord God. We know that, that our enemy wants to divide us. That you know, even it doesn't even take a fight, it just takes a preoccupation. To prevent us from doing those things which are most important. And I pray against that. I pray that you would help us to see it and recognize it and have nothing to do with it so that we can seek to be encouragers and those who build each other up. Lord Jesus, I also know that if we're in church long enough that we've had moments of, of division, of, of dispute, of friction or of, of hurt. And so I pray now also that you would just help us to walk into this this new season, this post-COVID season, afresh, ready to to see this as a a new chapter, able to to forgive frustrations and hurts of the past and, and ready to just give our best for you. Lord God, I pray that you would sustain those who are tired in their service, who have done so much to help bring us to this point, and that you would just... Renew their strength and encourage them and and show them what what you want for them next. Lord God, I pray for those who haven't found a place to connect as well, who are not as integrated, who feel like they're a little bit on the outside looking in or are not able to exercise their gifts in some way. Lord God, I pray that you would speak to them and show them how they can be more fully part of this community and that you'd give wisdom to those those of us who, who lead and serve, that you would help us to see who would be blessed by joining that work so that we could involve and include them more? Lord God, much like those Corinthians, a lot of the time we're making up things as we go along. But I pray that you would guide us and sustain us. And I give you thanks that the truth is that it's not about us and it doesn't depend on us. It only works because of you. So be in the middle. Be the one who holds it all together. Be the one who sustains it. Help us to put you first that it might be so.